Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Bridge Kids, for joining us this morning, and you are dismissed. For all of us, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, and I would invite you to turn there. And uh, if you need a Bible, our ushers have Bibles, and so uh, if you'd slip up your hand, if you'd like a Bible to follow along this morning, um, James has Bibles for us. And I encourage everyone to follow along because remember that when I'm going through a book study, we don't put the verses in the book on the screen. We put other verses on the screen. So we're going to be uh, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 17 this morning. Just as we start, according to the Barna Research Group, in a 2015 survey, there is a new moral code in our midst. Those who participated in this survey uh, gave these response, gave these statements in response. So listen to this carefully. Here was the first one. The best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. 91% of U.S. adults agreed with that statement. Now catch this. 76% of practicing Christians agreed. The uh, best way to find yourself is to look within. Or perhaps look to God for what he would have to say. Uh, the second statement was, people should not criticize someone else's lifestyle choices. 89% agreed with that, and 76% of practicing Christians agreed. People should not criticize someone else. Yet, if you read the scriptures, God has an opinion on that. And that um, lifestyle choices do affect Christ's followers. The third statement was, to be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things that you desire most. 86% of adults agreed, 72% of Christians agreed. To be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things that you desire most. Now, if pursuing God and seeking his kingdom are like top desires, that makes a lot of sense for a Christian. Next statement was, the highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. 84% agreed of adults and 66% of practicing Christians agreed. The scriptures indicate that the highest goal in life is to love God, to seek his kingdom. Um, another statement was, people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. 79% agreed, 61% of Christians agreed. People can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. And yet, if I read Scripture correctly, it seems to me that God wants followers of Christ to have a huge impact on our society. The last one was, any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. 69% of adults agreed, 40% of Christians agreed. And God says, that's not true. Based on these results, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons uh, wrote in their book, Good Faith, 
The morality of self-fulfillment is everywhere like the air we breathe. Much of the time we don't even notice we're constantly bombarded with messages that reinforce self-fulfillment in music, movies, video games, apps, commercials, TV shows, and every other kind of media, not even to mention social media. Self-fulfillment, is that really the American dream? Our values become the guiding principles which we make choices. The values we live by are extremely important. The problem is for us is when we say we believe something and we practice something else. And everybody knows that's a hypocrite. The Apostle John called out Christ followers to live out their values. And that's what we're going to talk about this, this morning. So if you have a, uh, in your program an outline, I encourage you to follow along. And the very first thing uh, that we, we're going to start with is it embraced the new family value of love. That's a real broad concept. And we're going to read the text. It's 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. And the Apostle John writes these words. You know, we're talking around 90 AD when he writes. He says, Dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light. And there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. And so in verse 7, John refers to that old command. Let's look at verse 7. He says, Dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning, since the beginning, since, since Jesus appeared, since Jesus began to teach and instructed his own disciples, and since Jesus returned to heaven. What is that old command? The old command is the message you have heard already. Um, what is the old command they had heard? Sixty years earlier, it was given to John and to the other disciples, and John has been sharing it ever since. And one of those passages is John chapter 15 and verse 12 and um, Jesus, the Apostle John records the words of Jesus. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. He wants his followers to love. And, the, and you may know that that word uh, in the original language is agape, and it means sacrificial love. It's a, it's a love of high commitment. It's a love of sacrifice. It's the love of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. It's that kind of love. And he, and he said, love each other just the same way that I loved you. And then he goes on to say, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now we know all about that. Now think about this. This happened 
These words were spoken the night before Jesus was crucified. All the things that Jesus had spoken up to this point, they still don't have any clue what's going to happen that within 24 hours, Jesus' body will be lying in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And Jesus will demonstrate. In verse 8, um, John marks out that new command. He says, yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you. So they're saying we can look at Jesus and we can see this command lived out. But also, church, he says, I see it in you. I see this being lived out in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. And there John is talking about the new light is already shining, that Jesus has come. He is the light of the world. And he has returned, into, he's returned to heaven, but he has turned everything over, his mission. He's turned it over to his followers. Then it was the 12 disciples who became the apostles and his church. And that new light is breaking out in the world. And as the kingdom of God advances one life at a time, the darkness is pushed back. In John 13, 34 and 35, we see Jesus actually give that new command. He says, a new command I give you, so here it is. This is exactly what John is talking about. Love one another. That's what we just read in John 15, 12. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. High commitment kind of love. I, I, I sometimes we just think loving one another is about feeling good and you know being nice to each other so that we all feel good about each other. But it's really a high commitment. Um, it's the same kind of love that a husband is commanded for his wife. Until death do, her, do them part. High commitment. Husbands, love, same word, your wives. So there's high commitment to love. And then notice verse 35. By this kind of love, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And Jesus was making this a strategy to reach the world for Jesus Christ. This love is a strategy. This love is a powerful influencer. It's the way God intended for people to be attracted to Jesus. And so people should be attracted to you. And they should want to know more about your faith or what makes you tick or why your marriage seems to be working or, or why your, your kids seem to, seem to have good values and are making good choices. Um, people should ask you, why? What is it? People should be attracted. Well, there must be something at, at this church. Uh, they should be attracted to you, which sometimes will mean an opportunity to invite somebody who God is attracting to himself. And so this was Jesus' huge strategy. Now, I want to go back and remind us of the context of what Jesus just said. This new command, love one another, by this the whole world's going to know. So if we go back to John 13, 12 through 15, 
So John 13, is, you know, it takes place in the upper room. It's the night before Jesus was crucified. They're going to have the Last Supper together. He's going to spend extended time with his followers, teaching and instructing and letting them ask questions. He's going to have a whole lot to say. Matthew 24 and 25 take place on this night. Uh, they're in the upper room. John 14, 15, 16, and 17 take place on this night, before John 18 and he's arrested. There's a lot of things going on on this night. So to prepare them for this night, they, they came to this upper room, and normally there was a servant there to wash the, uh, the, the people's feet, the, the guests' feet before the meal, and you probably know the whole story. And Jesus this, uh, surprised them by taking the time to wash each one of the disciples' feet. And Peter said, no way. Jesus said, yes. And Peter got his feet washed. And so when he had finished washing their feet, verse 12, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? No. We think you just washed our feet. We don't understand. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Next slide. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Now, was Jesus trying to establish a foot-washing ministry? Maybe. Because in his culture, washing feet was an act of a servant. He was showing them how to love each other, to be humble, to become a servant. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And for us, we think about how do we serve in our culture? What are practical ways that we can serve one another? So when we think about this command to love one another, it really includes a whole lot of things. The New Testament spells out many ways to show love for God and love for people. I'm going to start with uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 10. And so... Uh, the Apostle Paul writes these words to the church. He says, to be, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. There's that high commitment. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor. Show honor. Treat people with dignity. Show people value. In the body of Christ, there aren't some people that are more important and more valuable and there are others that are less valuable. Not true. And we are to show honor above ourselves. Romans chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. Apostle Paul says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. By the way, that's one way you can serve and show love to other people, is to be faithful in prayer for them. Share with the Lord's people. Be generous who are in need and practice hospitality. That's about opening your home, making your own resources available to people uh, in, in need. Romans chapter 14, verse 19. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification, because life is not about self-fulfillment, unless your self-fulfillment is found totally in Christ. Then you'll be fulfilled. 
Because Jesus came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. That's a fulfilled life when we are walking in the power of Christ, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 is another passage. Uh, simply says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ, loving one another. Carry each other's burdens. Now, in Galatians 6, uh, there's, there's, this, there's this picture, and that's, that's part of it right there. A burden would be like, and I always like uh, the way Henry Cloud explained it in his book, Boundaries. He talks about all of us have responsibilities that we should carry for ourselves. And he likened that to having your own personal backpack. You have stuff that you should take care of, that it's not my job to take care of for you. Problem is in life is that we sometimes take other people's backpacks and we become a enabler. We become codependent. But there are some things, like this word for burden. It's like a huge boulder, and it's just too big for us individually. God never intended for us to carry that by ourselves. And that's why the body of Christ comes alongside, to help, to encourage, uh, to support, to pray for, to walk alongside. That's why we're here. We all know some things are just too big for us. And we need each other. And this is one way we show love. Ephesians 4.2, another demonstration of love. Be completely humble, gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another. We have to put up with each other sometimes. Some of you have weird personalities. I don't understand why. I have a weird personality. But, you know, the way we, we are as individuals, we rub each other the wrong way. That's just kind of human. You find it out in marriage. You find it out in life. People you're close with, they're not perfect. Sometimes it's irritating. And yet, the Apostle John says, or this is the Apostle Peter, and he says, Bear with one another. Cut each other some slack. Give each other some room for their imperfections. That's one of the ways that we demonstrate love. And then Ephesians 4.32, and this is the last one that I'm using as an example of love. Uh, Apostle Paul writes, he says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. To forgive, that's a way of demonstrating love. Sometimes forgiveness is really hard. Have you been hurt? Have you been offended by another? Sometimes it even hurts more if the person is a Christ follower. And we are called to forgive. Not necessarily easy, it's not magical, it's a choice. It's, a, it's an act of the will. It's a decision. And why should we do that? Not because the person deserves to be forgiven or not because they've even apologized to you. It's because Jesus forgave you. You did some ugly things. And some of the things you didn't think were ugly were sin. And God forgave you for all of it. Who are you? to place yourself higher than him and hold it against somebody else. And he's saying, if you're going to love each other, 
You need to be able to forgive. Okay. And, you know, today we're celebrating communion. And if you haven't forgiven somebody, maybe you shouldn't take communion today. That's how important this is. Now, I know that I'm just going to add this about forgiveness. I know that we can choose to forgive, and we can actually do it, and we've released it, and we're good today. But something happens a week later, an hour later, especially if you're married, and, and something comes up, and it just draws all of these memories back, and all of a sudden it's alive, and I, I have something against this person. And what I need to do then is I need to just stop and forgive them again. For This is a new thing. This isn't the old thing. Even though it may go back in history, if I forgive, it's forgiven until I take it back. Sometimes we have to go through that process over and over until we find release. Verses 9 through 11, the failure to love. The failure to love. 1 John 2, 9. If anyone claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. This is the failure to love. The failure to love leaves us in a dark place, leaves us in darkness, leaves us still in sin. When we proclaim we are Christ followers, Life is good, I'm okay, but I hate someone. And John says, nope, you're still in the darkness. You're not in the light. You may be a child of God, but you're a child of God in the darkness right now, and that's not good, and you can't leave it that way. 1 John 2.10 says, if anyone loves their brother and sister... Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. So if you are walking in the light, that's a good place. Um, you have clarity and vision, and you are right with God. And, and when, you, when you are doing that, there is nothing in you, there is nothing in your behavior that can cause another person to stumble, to fall, to fall into sin, to be a bad example. But failure to love on the other side makes us susceptible to stumbling. And that's his point in verse 10. There is nothing in them to make them stumble. But if I fail to love... I put myself in a place of stumbling. I put others in a place of stumbling. Look at verse 11. Anyone who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. This is almost a humorous picture. It's act like we got it all together. I'm a Christ follower. I look good on the outside. You can't tell what's going on the inside. And, and, and John says, you don't have a clue. What's happening? You don't have a clue where you're going. You are walking in a dark room and there is no light. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. So if you hate a Christ follower, whether you know it or not, you are in the darkness. 
you are walking blindly and you, are, you will not have clarity about what God wants you to do. Uh, you'll be in the darkness. You do not see the direction you are going. So failure to love blurs our direction and guidance from God in verse 11. Failure to love blurs our direction and guidance from God. And when we're in the darkness, we are on our own. Okay, we come to verses 12 through 14. And um, for John, appreciate the new family identity, verses 12 through 14. So John loves to use the family metaphor. That's why we're entitled the series Family Resemblance. He uses these family metaphors. And, and you think about John. You go back to John chapter 1, and we learn that in John 11, John 1, 11, and 12, um, those who hear the message and receive the message and believe in Jesus Christ, they become children of God. That's a family. And he goes on and talks about how um, we are, if we place our faith in Christ, we are born of God. God is our Father. He is the Spirit. And we are born of the Spirit. We are given a new nature. And that's that spiritual connection that connects us with God. Uh, I have a Father. I have a spiritual father, and it's real, and I am connected to him, and I am his child. And the implication would be, I should start having some resemblance to him. And so John uses these metaphors about family. In verse 12, uh, John chapter 2, verse 12, he uses, the, he uses children. He says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And he's reminding the church. And it's, this is like, here's why I'm writing. This is my purpose. I want to encourage you. I want to instruct you. I want to appreciate you. I want to remind you about things that are important. And one of the things he's reminding them about, children here, your sins have been forgiven. Now, you already know that, I know. But he's just reminding them. Whatever they're thinking or facing, if they have placed their faith in Christ, John is confident about this group. He said, your sins have forgiven. By the way, do you know that this morning? Do you know whether your sins are forgiven? Do you know how they're forgiven? This is really important. John begins to remind them in verse 12 of their identity. Their identity includes they have been forgiven. You are forgiven children of God. And it is because Jesus died for you. And that's why we're going to share in communion this morning. And that's their identity. Your sins have been forgiven. They believe the message of the gospel, that Christ died for them as their substitute. It is by grace through faith and they now experience true forgiveness. Now he goes on in verse 13, and he, he brings up the family term of fathers. He says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him and who is from the beginning. Now he could have just been selecting male 
older members of the church who were fathers. I don't think that was his intention here as a metaphor. I think he was addressing those who were older and more mature and had had years more in being Christ followers. Uh, they are people in the church who have been believers a long time and they know God personally. And their identity, you have known him, Christ, who is from the beginning. They are in the family, they are mature, and they should be watching out for others. He goes on uh, in verse 13 also to young men. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. So he refers to younger in the faith, and they are strong because they have overcome the evil one, not because of their physical strength, but because of what Jesus did for them. They have overcome. Jesus has won the victory. Live in that. Don't be deceived by the enemy or by your culture. Know who you are. Know that Jesus has overcome the evil one, and he is now. That's your identity. This is your position because you have been given the righteousness of Christ. You have been given um, Jesus' credentials comes back to the term children again. Verse 14 uses a different word here. He says, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. Their identity is they have known the Father. He's referring to all believers here, not just could be young, young believers, but John uses that word children for all believers often. You know the Father. Uh, you have a personal relationship with the Father. And when we get to us, it's how well do we know him? And it's just like with anybody, how do you get to know anybody? And it's by time spent, it's by listening, it's by talking and communicating, and more investment into the relationship brings greater personal knowledge in that relationship. He comes back again to the fathers in kind of a restatement. In 14, he says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And he who is from the beginning is the eternal God. And the, our identity is you have known him who is from the beginning. He reminds them, he encourages his audience, and he is preparing his audience Young men, verse 14 also, he says, I write to you, young men, because he comes back again, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. For this identity, he says, you are strong. Now, you are strong because of Christ, not because of how cool you are or what degree you have. You are strong because of what Jesus has done for you. This is a position. You are strong because of Christ. Now, if you don't lean into Christ, if you don't walk with Christ, it doesn't benefit you, but you have this identity, this position, and the Word of God lives in you. When you placed your faith in Christ, God began a transformation, and in that sense, the gospel of Christ is in you, and now... As we live our lives, we are to be bearing fruit for him. 
The word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. That's a repetition of what he said earlier. And the important thing is, is how does the word of God live in us today, and how do we continue to enable it and allow it to be in our lives? That's time spent again. The discipline of reading scripture for ourselves. You know, if Sunday morning is all you get of the word of God, that's a small amount. And, you know, the Word of God is spiritual food, and we need food. We can't go a week. We don't, you know, life is not fun if you go a week without food, is it? But we, this is a discipline we learn for ourselves as a follower of Christ, is learning to read this book. There's a whole lot of practical things. If you're not familiar, I always recommend people start in the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, New Testament. Go to the table of contents, find that book, Start reading there. Learn about Jesus. Read the New Testament before you get bogged down in the Old Testament. There's a whole lot in the New Testament that will bring light to the Old Testament. So many times people start in the book of Genesis and then they start falling apart in Exodus. If they make it through Genesis, then they begats. That's a hard one to understand. God just wanted a record of how Jesus was going to come and so he recorded family names. You don't have to know everything about every family member listed in the Bible. Okay, um, we come to uh, the last section. It's a warning. Don't be distracted by a cheap love. Love is important. Love for one another is essential. It is crucial. Love for God we demonstrate our love by our obedience. But it's so easy to be distracted by a different kind of love. Verse 15, love for the world displaces our love for God. Love for the world displaces our love for God. John says in verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them, true or false. It's the problem of loving things versus loving God. Now, when we come to this concept, this term, world, it's cosmos, it can refer to three different things just by the writer of John. For example, it can refer to creation, John 1.10, the created world, the universe. The world can refer to that, that word usage. And then there's John 3.16, can refer to all of humanity, for God so loved the world, and he's talking about people. God loves people. That's not how John is using it here. In 1 John 2.15, it refers to a system that moves in opposition to God. It, it, it refers to a system that moves in opposition to God. There's a lot of passages that uh, can demonstrate this, and here's a couple. James chapter 4, verse 4, James writes, the Apostle James writes about 50 A.D., so this is pretty early in the life of the church. He says, you adulterous people, and he's calling them adulterous because they've put something ahead of Jesus. They have another, another lover besides Jesus. 
Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And for James, there is a world system that is working against the work of God. There are uh, forces that are happening, and we know that the enemy, Satan himself, is trying to build a counterfeit kingdom. And he does that through deception. There, there are forces at work in our culture that are anti-God, that actually oppose what God is doing. It's, it's been that way. It's not new in our culture. Self-fulfillment just happens to be one of the latest things we're working on in our culture. Um, James is talking about adapting and adopting values of our culture, putting uh, cultural values ahead of God's values, putting ourselves or what others think ahead of what God thinks, finding our identity and self-worth in things and our accomplishments instead of our identity in God. Jesus taught his followers in James, uh, John chapter 17, verses 13 through 18. He said, and so this is in his prayer. This is a prayer to the Father. It's the longest prayer of Jesus. I am, this should be the Lord's Prayer, by the way, by name. I'm coming to you now. He's talking to the Father. But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, God's word, and the world has hated them. There's that opposition, that animosity. There is a system in Jesus' day that hates what God is doing and that hated the disciples. In fact, tried to kill them all, by the way. And they all died martyrs' death except John, who was martyred in a vat of boiling oil, and he lived. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of this system, the world system. Next slide. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. That's important for us to understand. We're going to have opposition in this world. The goal of this world is not peace and happiness. Yes, we can have peace, but it's often going to be within, even though our world is crazy. And what Jesus was praying for is protection from the evil one because that's who messes with us. They are not of the world, his followers. Even as I am not of it, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means to set apart. Set apart for the purpose of serving. Sanctify means to be made holy. And, and anything made holy for God is always to be used for him. And that's what God wants for us, is to be holy so that we can be set apart for him, to serve him, to represent him, and to speak for him. During communion, we always talk about 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When we do that, we are made holy. If we're honest with God, and we are set apart 
And we're set apart to serve him, to honor him. But if we don't serve him and honor him, that's not going to last very long. We're going to be right back in the darkness. Sanctify them by, by the truth. And that's why God's word is, going to be, is so important for us, is because it, it keeps us in tune with God and what he's thinking and what his values are and how he works and gives us guidance on our attitudes and actions, mid-course corrections. And then 18, he says, I sent, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. We have been sent into a world system that it's in opposition with God. Now we come to verse uh, 16. The world system opposes God in at least three areas or three ways. Look at verse 16. For everything in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And so this is a classic passage right here. Uh, we could have probably spent our whole time on this. Um, everything in the world, any, three, three areas, the lust of the flesh. And here the word lust is the word for desire. And just that word desire is not evil. It can be evil, and so when the translators see it as being evil, being drawn to evil, they use the word lust. It just means desire. God created us all with desires, and desires are good. Desire for love, desire for acceptance, desire for sex, desire for food, desire to be recognized, desire to breathe, um, desire to have good health, those, are, those can be good. But the lust of the flesh is when that desire turns to be self-centered, self-focused for self-gratification. It's a desire to put self ahead of God. It's a desire to do my own thing. Especially when it comes to things like sex, food, secret, habits, alcohol, drugs, Things that are going to take us in a negative place if we don't, if we aren't honoring God. Then he goes on, that's the lust of the flesh, self-gratification. The lust of the eyes, desire to acquire more and more. Um, go back to Genesis chapter 3. Eve was in the garden. What happened first? She saw the fruit. She already knew about the fruit. She already knew that God said, okay. You can eat whatever you want here. All this is good. It's all for you. There's one thing. Just don't do that. So what does Eve do? She says, oh, she sees it. It looks good. I bet, it, I bet it's good food. It sure is pretty. And I, I wonder if it'll make me wise. And pretty soon she talks her husband into it, and she's off. It started with the visual lust of the eyes. Um... So the lust of the eyes takes us. It's what we see that we don't have and we need. It can be greed, covetousness, where I want that. I've got to have that. That will make me happy. I pursue that. We'll all say, well, things aren't evil. That is true. But the value we place on these things can make it evil for us. It depends on us. 
And then the pride of life. The focus on achievements, ownership, and wealth in determining our self-worth. The world system creates in us desires, the things that we need, things that will make us more valuable, to be worthy. Maybe um, we, the pride is that it's my family. Do you know the family I'm from? Our family is better than your family. That's the pride of life. Um, I'm worthy because of my race or my ethnicity. I'm more valuable than you because of that. That's the pride of life. We are better. Um, I have awards. I have education, and that makes me better. Um, I have possessions. Where I live or what I drive shows my value. That's the pride of life. We come to verse 17, the world system and its values will fail. The world and its desires pass away, verse 17. Um, the desires are strong, the desires are powerful, but they have no eternal significance. They will be shown for what they are one day. And our last point is that the person who does the will of God will et be eternally rewarded. Do you have an eternal perspective? John says, all the stuff that we strive for is not going to last. It's going to pass away. It's not eternal. And then he says, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Doing the will of God is having an eternal perspective. Doing the will of God is not about earning our salvation, doing the will of God starts with a relationship with Jesus because that's God's will. He desires that we have a personal relationship with him. He desires that we understand that we have sinned and we're going to need a savior and that Jesus is the one who stepped in, paid our price, became our substitute, and by faith in him, we can be forgiven. That's the will of God. Accepting the good news of the gospel is the starting place. Doing the will of God is about walking in the light. It's about following Christ one step at a time. And for John, it brings eternal joy and no regrets. The Apostle Peter uh, writes in a similar way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. He says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober... Set your hope on the grace to be brought when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. He's looking to the future. He's looking to Jesus coming back. Not to focus on all the problems of the here and now, but to look to when Jesus returns. As obedient children, that sounds like the Apostle John, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Don't let the world put you into its mold. Next slide. But just as he who calls you is holy, so you be holy in all you do. Remember what I just said about being holy? God's desire is for you to be holy. It's not a magical thing. It's not a super spiritual giant thing. It's just about you being right with God knowing your sins are forgiven, 
walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we sin, when we're in the walk, we fall down, we need to get back up, turn back to God, and keep walking. And we do that when we confess our sins. God forgives. God makes us holy. Since you call uh, on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Because for John, we're just passing through this world. This is not all there is. And then the last one is uh, Romans chapter 12. Great way to close. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. And he's looking back. What is God's mercy? It's the death of Jesus Christ and all the things that go with it. Your position in Christ. And there's at least 33 different things that God has demonstrated in the gift of our salvation. He says, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. To be holy, I, I just need to be right with God. I need to have my sins confessed. And I offer myself. I offer all that I am to God. This is not salvation. This is a commitment of a Christ follower. Okay? Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So it's a response back to God. This is what God has done for you. This is what you do back to God. Offer yourself to him totally. It's an act of worship. Next slide, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Sounds like the Apostle John. Don't let the world pour you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's a great thing about being a Christ follower. We have this opportunity to continue to have our minds renewed and refreshed and refocused because we get sloppy we get fresh starts. We can get a f fresh starts 10 times a day, every day. There's no limit. How? Then you, you will be, and the way I'm going to renew my mind is I'm going to be fresh in God's word. I'm going to be close in my relationship with God. And it's about being in a relationship with other believers. It's about loving other people. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? That's it. That's where it starts. If you want to know where God wants you in 10 years from now, start here. If you want to know what God wants you to do in a major decision you're facing, start here. Because this is the place you need to be in to find out where God is going to direct your next steps. So today we're going to come before God as a whole church to honor him for sending his son as we share in communion. We're going to take the bread and we're going to take the cup. The bread is a symbol to remind us of Jesus' body nailed to the cross for us. He died there. He died for us. The cup is a reminder of the blood of Jesus that paid the penalty for our sins. The sin penalty has been paid for. It is because of Jesus. Because of that, we have been forgiven. We know Christ. We have a personal relationship with God. We don't deserve it. It is by grace, and it was through faith. 
we have overcome the evil one because Jesus overcame the evil one. Now we are to live that way, to live with his resources so that we can overcome the evil one tomorrow, to live in his strength, in his life. And we are to love one another. Just the same way as Christ loved us. And he said, by this, the whole world will know we belong to him, that we are his followers. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask those who are going to serve communion to come as when I pray. And um, the scripture says that before we share in this time, it's so important that we examine ourselves. So uh, right where you are, just privately and personally, Ask God to show you if there's anything that you need to talk to him about, that you need to confess his sin, that you need to ask for his forgiveness. That's just a responsibility that each of us has as a, as a follower of Christ. And, and then after a short time, I'll thank the Lord for the bread and the cup. Let's bow before God. And you just talk to him silently where you are. Let God search your heart. Ask him to. Ask him to show if there's anything in you that's not pleasing to him. Ask God to forgive you of your sin. Thank God for forgiving you because we just don't deserve it. We have this promise that if we confess our sins... He, that is God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. Thank you, God, that you forgive us. Thank you that Jesus died in our place. That's what we deserved. Thank you for grace. May we be people who grow in our love for you, May we be people who grow in our love for each other. May we be people who continue to grow in our knowledge of God through our personal relationship, time spent with God. Thank you, God, for all the resources we have. Enable us to overcome the evil one so that we don't find ourselves in love with the world. Thank you, God, for the bread that represents the body of Jesus. Thank you for the cup that represents his blood that was shed for us. May we honor you with our lives this week, in Jesus' name.
Amen. So our custom at the bridge is, um, if, you know, if you're a Christ follower, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you don't have to be a regular attender or a member here. If you know Jesus, we just invite you to join with us. Um, whenever you're ready, you can come forward, take the bread and the cup, and you can go back to your seat, and then you can take it whenever uh, you're ready. This morning as we close our service, uh, and if you would like prayer, I would invite you to come up to the front, and uh, Andrew and Molly Bonlander will be here, and they would pray for you. The scripture says, um, for as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. Now it is for us to live in a way that honors who Jesus is and what he's done. Scripture says that Jesus is the light of the world, and when we follow him, we are walking in the light. May that be true this week. God bless you all. We're dismissed.